Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. This broadcast today is made possible by Public Utilities Fortnightly and a conference on the future of the electric utility industry being run by that magazine in Phoenix, Arizona on November the 17th and 18th. Do come if you're interested in electricity and the turbulence which has hit the electric markets. And now a few thoughts of my own. Everybody, I just mentioned markets in the commercial or in the sponsored announcement, uh, everybody talks about the market as though it's a kind of magic thing. Well, it is magic in some ways. You can fill your car with gasoline on the tip of Florida, and you can fill it without worrying about it with the gasoline on the north slope of Alaska. That is a distributive genius brought to you by markets, willing buyers and sellers and the organization of commodity sales that markets do well. But they are not perfect. They do not think ahead. They do not have conscience. They did not, for example, have a moral uh, objection to anything in history. And sometimes they overlook very valuable things. Mozart dying as a pauper. The market did not come to his rescue. And even today, we do really foolish things driven by the market. Many cities, Los Angeles, Washington, uh, for example, have abandoned railway tracks, mostly now turned into uh, bike paths and recreational uses that once uh, carried commuter trains. Now when the cities are jammed with traffic, when Washington DC, which has achieved the extraordinary distinction of having the worst traffic in the country, you can't get a train anywhere. There are very limited commuter rail systems. The market said no more commuter rail and annihilated it. Now it is needed. The market speaks, the market is powerful, it's absolute, it's a cruel exterminator, as well as being a great distributor. For example, we are now closing down nuclear power plants when we need clean, carbon-free electricity, which is in abundance from nuclear power plants. But the market has said that costs a little more than other options, and particularly the option of natural gas, which is not carbon neutral at all, and certainly not carbon free. So beware of the market. It doesn't have a conscience, and it hasn't any foresight. We have a very special program to you today, for you today, and I'm joined by Linda Gasparello, the co-host of this program. And we're going to be talking to Felice Freire, who's the healthcare reporter of the great newspaper, the Boston Globe, one of our really best newspapers in America. Welcome to the broadcast. And tell me about covering healthcare. It's a fascinating beat, isn't it? It is. It's something different every day, every week. There's always a lot going on. Uh, now, when you cover healthcare, are you talking about drugs? Are you talking about policy? Are you talking about crises? Uh, what what is entailed in writing about healthcare? My focus has been, for me personally, because there's several of us covering healthcare at the Globe. My focus has been on public health and public policy. Which, which is such a big, <laughs> it really covers almost anything, but mostly I'm focusing on um, public health issues such as infectious diseases or the opioid crisis 
as well as policy, um, things that the government has done to increase the number of people with insurance, that sort of thing. Obamacare. Obamacare, which really was originally Romney Care and started in Massachusetts. And so you know more about it than most people because it did start in Massachusetts. Right. I wasn't there then. But, but, and, and a lot has changed, too, over the years. But, um, Felice, yeah. how has it gone for Massachusetts? I mean, as we're looking at an election, you know, coming in 2016, how has Massachusetts been served by what Governor Romney began in, in the state? It has really been a positive thing for the state, and it's enormously popular among people in the state. So that they did a survey last year, and uh, two-thirds of people in the state support it and, and also support Obamacare because they've seen it play out for them. So there are very few people in Massachusetts who don't have health insurance. It's down to 3 or 4%, depending on which survey you look at, which has been the lowest in the nation for the longest time. But interestingly, uh, Massachusetts had some problems with it because they had to change the way the program was operating when the Affordable Care Act came in. Which is commonly known as Obamacare. As Obamacare, Obamacare right, right, yes, or, or the ACA. And so they had to change their whole computer system and they made a terrible mess of it. And it was really, really, and continues to be a really frustrating thing for people. So the government had a great plan and uh, great ideas, and then when they had to change it, the implementation was just done so poorly. But the interesting thing about this study that was done last fall, right in the thick of all of this, is that despite the frustrations with how it played out, people still support it. So that's interesting. Uh, do you think this will have a national impact? Do you think that the success in, 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 in Massachusetts is going to be a template for the country? Well, I think it was. I think that's what Obamacare was, um, and that was the whole idea. But you have to carry through. You have to do the whole thing. Not every state has put into it what states like Massachusetts that's and right. Rhode Island have done. It's uneven. With, with, right. So if you look at some of the latest data that came out on the uninsured, the states like Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, many others that have their own um, ex insurance exchanges, operate them themselves, and the states that did the Medicaid expansion are the ones that are seeing a lot of success. The states that resisted it, they're still, in spite of themselves, you know, seeing the number of uh, uninsured going down, but not to the same degree. So you do not think it would be a clever idea if uh, on day one of the new <laughs> presidency, Obamacare is put on the skids? I can't imagine that happening anyway, because it's already becoming so ingrained. It's such a part of life, and so many people who didn't have insurance now have it, and I don't think they would take kindly to have it taken away from them. There's a, an epidemic of uh, heroin, but not the result of people going to seek heroin, people being on prescription drugs that were more powerful than they thought, more addictive. And you've written a lot about that, and very beautifully, I might say. Uh, what's the state of the situation? Are the doctors to blame? Are the drug companies to blame? Or is it just one of these terrible mistakes that has happened? It's always hard to cast blame. It's always hard to know. It's never Not good. in Washington. We're <laughs> jolly good at it in Washington. You, can, uh, you go right. over to the Congress. They know who's to blame. Exactly. You can cast blame, but, it, but that would be overly simplistic. What, what happened is that 
uh, back 10, 15 years ago, there was a growing awareness that pain was not being treated well, treated properly. Senator Hawken had hearings on pain, quite a few, because he himself had a terrible pain problem. Right, and we had um, pain became the fifth vital sign. It became something that you had to check for. Simultaneously, OxyContin was invented and was very aggressively marketed. And what happened is that in, it went too far. People were too, this, drugs were being prescribed so excessively that, I mean, and it happens to this day. I mean, just last year I went to, I had a dental procedure and I got 30 days of Vicodin, which I didn't touch because I didn't that have that much a pain. Lot. That so if I lot. had um, a teenager in the house, or even sometimes your plumber will come in and take it out of your medicine cabinet. So what happened is that the market was just flooded with these drugs. And there have been studies showing that in the states that have high number of um, overdose deaths also have a lot of pres prescription opioids going into the marketplace. Now, it's the truth is that most people, when you take a drug like OxyContin, most people don't like it. And most people are not, some people can become dependent on it, which is different. Most people don't become addicted, but there's a percentage of people who are susceptible to these drugs and have a different reaction to them, and they can become addicted. And, and then you also have all the recreational use. And be, with all these prescriptions, you're on your grandma's night table, it becomes easy for kids who just want to experiment to start using it. And if they are susceptible to addiction, they can become addicted. They're expensive drugs in a short period of time. I've heard addicts tell me it was like a few months. I couldn't afford it anymore. I, 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 heroin was a lot cheaper. But these are people who were using drugs recreationally. Now the they weren't, they, they were, this is an important distinction, I think, don't you, Linda? Yes. They were using drugs recreationally. They weren't using them to alleviate chronic pain. They may not, no, they may have started with the prescription for pain, or they may have started with their brother's prescription for pain. I don't know if anyone has or broken just raiding it down. A, or just raiding a, a cabinet, you know, where, as you said, you were prescribed painkillers and you left them in the cabinet and anybody could have gotten into them. Right, uh, right. And so you do hear stories of people who had athletic injuries, that kind of thing, and were prescribed painkiller for it and became addicted and it led them down the rabbit hole into heroin. But what's not clear is whether that's most of the people or whether, but, but what is clear is that it's just the easy, wide availability of these opioid drugs right. that has led to this crisis and that has led it out into places where people didn't expect to see it, into so-called nice suburban families. Well, that's it. I mean, the profile of somebody who was an opioid abuser was, I think, pretty typically somebody, um, I think it was like white male, um, uh, not, not employed or underemployed, um, that has hugely changed to be across socioeconomic lines. It could be somebody from, um, you know, a family that's in the upper echelons of, you know, the socioeconomic uh, scale, and um, it's just been turned on its head. Well, it's because addiction is a disease, and if yeah. you have a brain anatomy that makes you susceptible to addiction, and then the drugs are everywhere. It doesn't matter how rich your parents are. If you have that susceptibility Absolutely. and then you're exposed to it, it can happen to you. How has this... It can even happen with alcohol, of course. 
Yes. There are people who are hugely susceptible Absolutely. to alcohol. And it, yeah, and often some of these um, people who get involved in heroin, they'll tell you my father was an alcoholic, so there's a, a genetic so component to it. What has been the impact as we think about, you know, health care and people who have joined the health care roles uh, through Medicaid? What has been the impact on the hospitals? This must be a tremendous problem for them to deal with because this is not an easy thing for them to treat. I mean, one patient coming in is probably many thousands of dollars uh, to get through treatment. Are you talking about uh, treatment for addiction or, or, or are you talking about Medicaid? I'm talking about if somebody comes in, say for instance, there's a woman with a pregnancy, um, has a baby that is an addicted baby. Um, the cost of care of that baby um, would be in the many thousands of dollars um, through, probably through Medicaid. Um, yeah. Bring, bring us through okay, you know, what, so, a, what so a scenario we're gonna talk might about, be like. So you're raising a very interesting issue about a, a phenomenon they're seeing now where um, women are having babies who are, they don't say they're addicted because addiction involves a behavioral You're component. Right. So right. the babies are born dependent on the drugs their mothers are taking. Now the interesting thing is that many times uh, these mothers are on maintenance therapy for an addiction that they're fighting or that they already have under control. And you're not supposed, if you're on methadone or, or suboxone, you're not supposed to stop it. These, when you're are, the, these are the heroin blockers, generally. Right, right. They, they exactly. Opioid they, blockers? They, they reduce your cravings for the drug. So they work for opioids. And if the opioids are your main concern, then this can help you manage your life and live a normal life. Right. And, and so there are women who become pregnant or they, they were active users and they become pregnant and they need to get it under control. And the way to do that is with drugs. But this takes it into the next generation so that then the babies are born dependent on the how drugs do you and wean, have to be. How do you wean the babies? I mean, you can't tell them not to do something. They don't. Right, and right. they're going to suffer so withdrawal. What, yes. So wait, I, this is actually a very complex topic. And I wanted to get back to your question about, you know, there, there's been nationwide a five-fold increase of babies born with what they call a neonatal abstinence syndrome since two th between 2000 and 2012. Can we hold that right there while I do a little station ID and we'll be right back. Yeah. Uh, this is for the benefit of our listeners, primarily on Sirius XM radio, channel 124, where this program can be heard four times on every weekend. You're listening to White House Chronicle with myself, Llewellyn King, Linda Gasparello, the co-host of this program, and Felice Freya, the healthcare reporter, or one of the healthcare reporters for the Boston Globe. She's telling us about some of the horrors and some of the challenges in healthcare, and particularly at the moment we're talking about uh, addictive drugs that have been prescribed often for pain, but have ended up uh, being a major problem. This program can be seen on 200 American television stations and worldwide on the English language programs of Voice of America. As you were saying, Felice. Okay, so I wanted to answer your question with this big increase in babies born dependent on drugs. Most of them, many of them have to stay in the hospital and that somebody recently did the, an estimate that's $1.5 billion a year, 80% of that on Medicaid. So yes, it's well, affecting Medicaid. Well. Um, but the key thing is, it's not necessarily a tragedy. 
um, a good percentage, 20 to 40 percent of the babies whose mothers were taking um, these drugs are not affected by it. They go oh, home, they're fine. Fantastic. The ones that are there, they, they have to be, the fact is the doctors don't really know the best way to treat them and they're now studying it even though this phenomenon has been around since the 70s. Um, they're finally looking at it closely and trying to figure it out but what they do is they give them a little bit of um, morphine I think is one common drug or they may don't remember what the other one is but they give them tiny bits of drug and gradually wean them off it and no one really knows how the babies do long term um, some of them may have problems with um, jitteriness and anxiety and that kind of thing or, or some developmental delays but no one really knows and um, the general feeling is that it, the environment is the most important thing so if the mother if mothers will stay with them and, and comfort them and cuddle them and give them breast milk um, and then if they go home to a good supportive environment and they have the services they need and they have that early can intervention overcome it's, they can. Through. They will do as well as any other child. I oh, mean, so that's a very that, I mean, uplifting that's, note. That seems to be, you know, that's been the experience with um, the crack babies, you know, the so-called crack babies, when that was a big issue. That you really, it's children are not just like chemicals, you know, their environment and the love them and the attention they get is what's going to make a difference in how they do. I would like to ask you about diseases that don't get a lot of attention. Uh, viewers of this program probably remember that I talk a lot about chronic fatigue syndrome, also known as myalgic encephalomyelitis, where that community feels very shunned by the doctors, by government research, by the drug companies, and because it's a lifelong uh, inability to cope, really, physically to cope with, with things, often they are uh, shunned by their families who get tired, they get fatigued looking after people who never get better uh, or who are better today and sicker tomorrow. Um, what about these, they're not quite orphan diseases, they're too big to be orphan diseases. Uh, how are they faring in, in, in the medical community? I think diseases like that are always a big challenge. When you talk about chronic fatigue, it is, first of all, no one knows what causes it. There was hope a while ago that they had identified a virus that led to it and that fell yeah. apart, turned out not to be the case. So whenever you're um, dealing with something where the symptoms are very common, there are a lot of different things that can cause those symptoms and the cause is unknown and there's no good treatment. I mean, you can sort of sympathize with the doctors if they, they can't help the person. It's, or they it, can't it, diagnose it. There's yeah. no biological marker. Right, which exactly. Is, you know, for the benefit of our viewers and listeners, that's when you take a blood or urine or some other sample and analyze it and find out what's wrong. But you can't find out what's wrong with um, chronic fatigue, uh, except that people can't cope, that they're bedridden often, they have pain, they have uh, sensitivity to light and sound, varying, varying. Uh, uh, symptoms. Sometimes they're sick for two or three years, so sick they can't get out of bed, which is not a great thing in a marriage or a relationship or for a mother uh, or for, for a, a breadwinner. Exactly. A, it's very terrible. I've done a lot of work on this myself and uh, broadcasting and writing about it. And it, it's very depressing not to be able to see this light at the end of the tunnel. But there are people working on it. 
uh, one of the things I've found, and you may have found this with other diseases, is a great sort of sense of anger in the community, in the cohort, among the sick, that, that they are unloved and pushed aside. And um, one doctor said to me that he would rather have cancer because you either die or you get better mm. than have chronic fatigue syndrome. We, you may linger for decades, and I have hundreds, actually thousands of emails from patients around the world. So uh, I'm glad you know about it. Have you written about it at all? Not in recent years, um, but I, I hear about it from time to time, and I understand how difficult it is. And I think Western medicine, which is so focused on pills and procedures and uh, cures, it isn't as good at dealing with chronic conditions where, where you have to help a person learn how to live their lives. Um, you brought it up, and this is interesting. I think Linda will find it interesting, too. You said Western medicine. Do you look at Eastern medicine at all? Uh, do you have opinions about it? I No. <laughs> no, I don't know that much about it. Um, you hear a, a lot of it is anecdotal. You hear people who've been helped by acupuncture. But again, that's something no one really understands You know, within the construct of Western medicine, how that works and whether it's a placebo effect. And to a certain extent, it doesn't matter as long if as you feel were. better, you know? Oddly, I've known several doctors who, who, who are intrigued with it rather than committed to it and yeah. who, are, who say it doesn't seem to do any harm, try it. Right, exactly. One of, uh, one of the things that's making the rounds with uh, Republican candidates in this 2016 election is the idea about high-risk pools and having the federal government um, subsidize state-run high-risk pools, you know, for people, um, you know, who really need medical care but can't afford it. This idea is an, it's an old idea. It's been around a long time. There are at least three candidates that have talked about uh, the federal government doing this, um, basically subsidizing the high-risk pools. And it has been shot down by the U.S. Congress. I mean, they looked at what the cost of this would be. A um, couple of years ago, um, Eric Cantor, um, Republican from Virginia, was looking at what the cost would be. And it was like $3 billion um, over a year. I think they're now talking about 150 to $200 billion over, uh, over a decade. That's by one conservative think tank study. So I'm thinking, have you done any reporting about this old chestnut, the high-risk pool, um, no, I haven't. That hasn't come up uh, locally at I've all. A, I have a question for you about that, Linda. A high-risk pool is a, is a contradiction. It's <laughs> not a pool. I mean, <laughs> the reason right. you have pools is so you have low-risk, balancing <laughs> high-risk. If you sick out the deadly sick, of course it's going to be expensive if you're not going to have some healthy people to pay in, which is the concept Which of is the concept. Actually, this was... This was the concept, really, of the Affordable Care Act, that, that the healthy would pay for the very, very sick. Well, Otherwise, it doesn't work. All and it's the concept of all insurance, right. So, as I said, but, but this particular... How will it differ from Medicare, which is very expensive, very good. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm on it. It works marvelously. You get a lot of tests you don't want, but the doctor signs off on them and says, go take them. Um, and you learn a lot of things you'd rather not know as a consequence. Uh, but 
uh, he, that is a high risk pool because old people have more <laughs> right. problems than young people. Right. So that is your high risk pool already. That's right. So you just extend that to everybody who's egregiously sick and it'll be even more expensive. Well, as I said, this is, this is a concept that is in at least three campaigns that I know about. Um, and it's something that, as I said, the even Republicans in the House, you know, who are looking to have the federal government sort of, uh, you know, uh, to handle federal government, uh, you know, expansion and sort of the, you know, what, what bothers conservative Republicans is that there's been this expansion of, of the federal government. This is not exactly the way to cut the expansion of the federal government by having them do this. But. So what would that do to address prevention? No, to, what would it do? It seems to be all aimed towards the high end instead of it just like, seems keeping people to, healthy. It's basically, it's just a way to, to cordon off the very sick from those who are young and healthy and who don't want to have to pay the, su the burden or bear the burden. It's a way of, of subsidizing insurance. Yeah, actually, yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, well, you know, so it ceases to be insurance. It becomes a different kind of animal. Right. And maybe necessary. Uh, the cost of medicine, it's hugely high. I think we are now paying in America 19% of our gross domestic product. Most places it's somewhere 8 or 9%, uh, a little lower actually, I think, in Japan. And there are various systems. There's, there, there are hybrid systems, I think, in the Netherlands and Germany, and uh, total government systems in Britain, France, elsewhere, with, you know, people complain, but they, they never suggest that they abandon their free healthcare. Uh, and they don't seem to be very good at controlling costs, but it's obviously better than we are. What do you think about efforts to control costs in medicine? It's very difficult within the system that we have because of, it's so complex, it's so fragmented, it is very procedure-oriented, very cure-oriented. Um, Americans also expect they want, their, they want to see the doctor when they want to see the doctor, and they want to get the MRIs that they think they need. And um, doctors are paid a lot. Uh, health insurance executives are paid a lot. We have this big, complex health insurance system, the whole process of billing that you don't have. Um, well, there was a, a terrifying exposure of this done by Steve Brill in, in Time magazine, and Steve Brill is a very remarkable man, and he went and looked at hospitals that don't know what their real costs are, so they simply assign them arbitrarily that our aspirin in one will be $200 and $5 in another hospital. Um, it is, it is amazing that people don't, we really don't know what the actual cost is. So you talk about, you can only talk about the price, you know, and what, what the insurance, and not even the price that the hospital puts on it, but what they negotiate with the insurance company. So it's different depending on who your insurance company is, but what did it actually cost? The, rea the reality is nobody knows for any given procedure. I was astounded so, to find out that a new drug and this is not criticizing the drug companies, mm -hmm. but just to develop a new drug in, can be more than a billion dollars, can be two billion dollars, and who knows whether the drug will work. So they go for pills. They go for something they can see that they'll sell, which may not be an infusion, something that you have to take uh, as, a, as a drip feed or something else, and not for prevention. Prevention's best. Live clean, right? Right, but nobody can make money off that. 
No. Uh, so are you depressed by our health care system, Felice? Sometimes, yes. I admit it. it it's, but there are also many good things about it, too. There are many really smart, really competent people. The drugs, we can complain about the prices, but some of them really will work. You know. Might I sum up for you and say that we have a rather mixed picture in health care, but excellent medicine? That's probably a good way to put it. Yeah. And this is our show. We're so glad you joined <laughs> us. And stay healthy, my dear. Thank you. Very nice to have you on the broadcast. It Thank was, Felice. Thank Great you, to Linda. have you. That's our show for today. Behave yourselves. We'll see you next week. I myself may not be able to behave myself. All the best. Mm -hmm.